Let me encourage you to uh, turn to Genesis chapter 1 that David read for us a little bit earlier in our service. So you will have heard from Peter, uh, from my prayer, uh, from the reading and uh, from this handout that we are beginning a new series today uh, looking through uh, the early chapters of Genesis 1, 2 and 3 over these next weeks. And indeed, let me encourage you to have this handout uh, to hand if you like that sort of thing to help you to begin to see where we're going in these next few moments. Now, whether you're into New Year's resolutions or not, most of us turn the corner into a new year wondering how it will all turn out and uh, largely hoping for the best. The new year feels like a time of new beginnings and bright, new, shiny hopes. Hopes for a better year, a fitter year, a prosperous new year. But in truth, unless Jesus returns, this year will pan out the same as every other year before it, with some hopes realised and some hopes dashed, with joyful high points and devastating lows. And largely, for most of us, it will be a year when the majority of days sees us playing out the same old routines. So realistically, what should we expect from this year and come to that from every year? How can we pitch our expectations right to stop us from being disappointed or or heading in the wrong direction in life? We only get one go at life. We ought to make sure that we do it as well as we can. Well, we can do no better than to turn to the book of Genesis. Uh, the, The early chapters of Genesis are foundational chapters, laying out not only foundations for the Bible, but for the whole of life, of existence, of everything. And for that reason, I come to them with a measure of fear and trepidation. Preaching on the foundation of everything carries considerable responsibility. But I also come fearful of preaching on Genesis chapters 1 to 3 because these are chapters that seem to be very emotive. Christians have strong views about them, at least many Christians do, about how these chapters square up to scientific discovery, about how old the earth is, how long God took to create it and how creatures like the dinosaurs fit in. We ask many questions of these first chapters of Genesis. But our questions are often the wrong questions to ask. Look, if you need to find directions somewhere, you'll get nowhere if you turn to the phone book. And you'll be equally frustrated if you look in an A to Z uh, to find a phone number. You might find the occasional phone number printed on an A to Z, but it won't be the one you're looking for. We must ask the right questions of the document in our hands. But when it comes to the early chapters of Genesis, so often we're asking the wrong questions. As Gordon Wenham says, and I printed this on the handout there, the Bible versus science debate has, most regrettably, sidetracked readers of Genesis chapter 1. See, too often when we come to the first chapters of Genesis, we ask the wrong questions. Indeed, the important thing about the book of Genesis is the question it is going to ask of us. Because the questions it asks of us are far more profound than any of the questions we ever ask of it. Genesis asks big questions about life, about God, about death, about personhood, about meaninglessness, about sex and relationships, about who I am and what I am and where I am, and about why should I and and how should I. Get these questions answered and we will have foundations for life. We'll be able to stand firm whatever comes our way this year or next year or the year after that. Now, with that word of introduction in place, let's plunge into this wonderful first chapter of the Bible. Now, over these next two weeks, as we look at Genesis chapter 1, we'll look at six great themes. God, 
God's word, creation, idolatry, mankind and eternal rest. But first, let me say one big observation that will hopefully show us why these six themes are the big themes of the passage. One big observation then, and it is this. In Genesis chapter 1, the message is the medium. Now what I mean by that is the very form of the chapter fits the function of the chapter. See, Genesis chapter 1 is one of the great pieces of literature. Its structure and movement is memorable and rhythmic, but its literary genius is in the way the structure itself teaches us what the writing is about. Now, the structure is easy to see. There's a deliberately repetitive chorus. You'll have heard it as David read it for us. Uh, Verse 3, and God said, end of verse 5, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Verse 6, and God said, end of verse 8, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Verse 9, and God said, verse 13, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. The structure can't be missed. And there are other structures within that structure. The structure gives the chapter its memorability, but crucially it gives us its meaning. It tells us that the world is an orderly place, ordered by its creator. Genesis 1 is an orderly account of the orderly creation. The message is in the medium. We see, of course, the orderliness of creation every day, every season, every year. Every day the sun rises and the sun sets. Every year spring follows winter, even while we're in the grip of these icy Arctic conditions. We know spring is coming and spring will be followed by summer and autumn. It's the same every year. Here in Genesis chapter 1 we also see an ordered week, seven days, a week in which humanity can operate. It tells us of the need of rest one day in seven. It tells us of the need to rest every day when the sun goes down. God has ordered the world this way. And this is the key point. There are patterns and laws built into the very fabric of our world. Indeed, science in the West advanced on this very understanding from Genesis chapter 1. Scientific experimentation progressed on the belief that you could go into a laboratory with the confidence that if you created exactly the same set of circumstances, exactly the same results would pop out the other end. Now on this point, Gordon Wenham is far more erudite than I am. In fact, he's far more erudite than I am on every point. Uh, So let's listen to his words and they're on uh, on the handout there. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 provided the intellectual underpinning of the scientific enterprise. Its assumption of unity and order, underlying the manifold and seemingly capricious phenomena of experience, rests on Genesis 1's assertion of the one almighty God who created and controls the world according to a coherent plan. Only such an assumption can justify the experimental method. Were this world controlled by a multitude of capricious deities or subject to mere chance, no consistency could be expected in experimental results and no scientific laws could be discovered. You see what he's saying? An ordered creation as expressed in this orderly opening chapter was fundamental to the advancement of science. Well, already as we look at the mere structure of this chapter, we discover that science and Christianity need not be at loggerheads. Indeed, science and scientific discovery gained its confidence in the experimental method from this chapter. But I am way ahead of myself now in going into that. I've started here to demonstrate how the structure of the chapter gives us the meaning of the passage. 
But with that premise in place, and for that very reason, the creation is not the place to start. The starting point has to be God. Why? Because the chapter begins with God. That is how it's structured. So the first point over the page on the handout, God, verse 1, in the beginning, God, the one true living almighty creator God, is the place to begin because he is the one who began everything. Uh, The very uh, word God appears 35 times in the first 34 verses of this book and almost always as the subject of the verb or the subject of the sentence. God is the dominant actor in the creation of the universe. In this chapter, nothing happens unless God speaks. You'll see it, you'll have heard it as it was read. Verse 3, and God said. Verse 6, and God said. It's the same in verse 9, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24, and God said. that This chapter establishes God as the creator of everything. A crucial point for us, because even as Christians who believe that God is the creator of everything, that he ought to be the subject of everything, so many times we keep wanting to put ourselves as the centre and the, uh, the point of everything. In the beginning, apart from God, nothing. There was nothing. No atoms to cause a bang of any description, big or small. And so, as we look at the very beginning of this chapter, of this book, whatever your views about the way the world came into being, we come to that whatever your view about anything scientific or philosophical, if they contradict God and his word, you can be sure they are wrong. For God is supreme. The structure as well as the opening words tell us that. In the beginning, God created everything. And that tells us so much about the one true living creator God. Uh, Two things that I will point out uh, on here, on the handout. Firstly, it tells us that God is sovereign. See, again and again in the Bible, it is the fact that God is creator that gives us confidence that he is sovereign, the Lord over all. I put some examples there on on the handout of that. Uh, For me, the clearest of them is the way the Christian believers prayed in Acts chapter 4, verse 24. Uh, Again, do you see it there on the handout? They prayed, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Do you see what they're saying? The living God is Lord of all, sovereign over all, because he made all. Now look, the sovereignty of God is such a crucial truth for Christians to know and trust. We, we saw it last term as we looked at the book of Revelation back in uh, September it was. God's sovereign rule gives beleaguered and suffering Christians deep comfort and assurance. Do you remember that from Revelation chapter 4? Indeed, as I, I suffered the shock of bereavement last year, the sovereignty of God was wonderfully comforting and reassuring. But sadly, many Christians I speak to today don't believe in the sovereignty of God, at least not in a way that helps them when things are tough. And I have a hunch that in part it's because we've lost confidence in Genesis chapter 1. We we tend to shy away from this chapter because we are fearful that this chapter can't stand up to the questions we ask of it. And in avoiding the chapter, we've lost the foundation for believing that God is sovereign and ruling over everything. So we don't believe it. Genesis chapter 1 gives us that assurance. God creating everything tells us that God is sovereign. And second sub-point on here... uh, God being the creator of all things tells us much about his character. I love Julian Hardiman's brilliant description of the creation. Um, 
there's a lot in his book on this, but here's a taster of it that I've uh, printed out again on the handout. On the first day, God is portrayed making the earth and the sea, granite flecked with quartz and mica, pink soil like the field in South Devon we used to go past on family trips to Dartmoor, salty seas with green waves and foam-like squirty cream. The next day he made plants. I have very little imagination, he writes. If it, if it had been me, I think I'd have made one kind of tree and some grass and maybe some flowers too and then gone off for a rest. God did a bit better than that. He made thousands of kinds of grass and not just one kind of fruit tree but pears and plums and peaches and pomegranates and that's just a few that begin with P. Think of the flowers too. Red poppies so delicate they fall to pieces if you pick them. Daffodils like gold. Sweet peas that can fill a garden with Chanel number no. 5. It's terrific writing, isn't it? Now we could go on and, and talk about the creatures, God, uh, the creatures God made. So diverse in size from the, the ant to the blue whale. And spectacularly unusual in form and habit from the, the duckbill platypus to the anteater and the puffer fish. That's an amazing fish, isn't it? God made it all. And it all tells us that God is infinitely imaginative and creative. And if we would just stop for a moment from the frenetic madness of 21st century living and consider the enormity of creation and indeed the detail of it all, we would have our mind blown by how amazingly powerful God must have been to have created all this. As I said over Christmas, 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Our sun 150 trillion miles from the centre of our galaxy. 100 billion galaxies with over 100 billion stars. It is immense. As somebody asked me uh, once when I, when I was in London, uh, if God really is there, why did he need to create such a huge and vast solar system? I didn't have an answer for him when he asked me it. I went away and thought about it and I didn't have to think for long. He did it to demonstrate us to us his awesome power so that we would give appropriate glory and praise to this majestic God. We look at how big it is and we go, wow. Well, apart from the enormity of it all, there's the detail and intricacy of creation too, the molecules, the neutrons, the protons that make up planet Earth, and the precision of it all. Sir James Jeans, the uh, famous British astronomer, once said, the universe appears to have been designed by a pure mathematician. Take, for example, the tilt of the earth at a, at a 23 degree angle which produces our seasons. Experts tell us that if the angle were different, vapours from the oceans would move north and south and the earth would gradually be encased by an ice cap. It has to be exactly 23 degrees to work. If we'll open our eyes to it all, it tells us how amazing our God is. And so Romans chapter 1 verse 20, again, which I printed on the handout, says this, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Now do you see what is being said there? It's simply this, look at creation and think about it and we can see God's nature. We can see that he is powerful and ingenious and creative and imaginative. And Genesis chapter 1 insists that we begin with God as the foundation of everything. He is the great foundation for life. Indeed, to, to live without the one true living God it is to flounder around without anything to stand on. Well, at least nothing to stand on that can stand forever. 
to take God out of the equation is to have, as it were, the, the carpet of life whipped from under your feet, which means sooner or later you are going to fall flat on your face. And that, of course, is where the new atheists want to take us. There is a vocal minority who are on a self-confessed mission to undermine Christianity. The most obvious is, is Richard Dawkins. He, along with others, both now and in the past, would have us believe the theory that physical matter is the only reality. That stuff and the things we can see and know about is the only thing that really exists. Well, Genesis chapter 1 says, no, there is more to life than just matter. And we'll return to this next week when we see how the structure of this chapter points to something far more than just what we see. But for now, Genesis chapter 1 tells us that we must start with God. It's where the chapter begins because it's where everything begins. Uh, Second, we see in this chapter that that God created everything through his word. It's the second point uh, on uh, on the handout. See, we've already noted that nothing came into being until God speak, uh, spoke. Uh, in, verse 13, God, uh, in verse 3, God said, let there be, and there was. Uh, that's repeated in verse 6 and 9 and 14 and, and 20 and verse 24. It, it's a pattern in the ordered structure of this chapter and therefore it's a key point. The details of the mechanism used to create everything are of no interest to the author. To ask how God made the world from Genesis chapter 1 is an example of asking the wrong question of this chapter. The point is not the mechanics of creation, but the power of God in creation. For like the mighty God that he is, he only had to speak and it was done. Just a word. Just saying a word and things happening is a sign of being very powerful. If the Prime Minister decides that a road will be built, he doesn't use a shovel, he just speaks and it's done. And at the end of his term of office, when the Prime Minister says, I built that road, the mechanics of how it was built are not important. He spoke and it happened. That's the crucial thing. Well, look, you don't get any more powerful than God. He speaks and the creation happens, which isn't to say he's not the one who makes it. That's just not the point here. Now, that does lead to our third point over the page, God and creation. See, you've already seen that everything is created by God, everything comes from him, but please don't be confused as many are. The creation is not a part of God in some way. We have not all got this kind of little spark of God in us. We're all little gods. That's not the point at all. The creation is not part of God. The creation is quite separate to God. Well, again, we see that in the structure of the chapter, in the repetition of the chapter. You'll have heard, again, if you were listening into it, that each is ordered according to its kind. So, for example, the living creatures are ordered each according to their kind. You see it in verse 21. God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. You'll see the same phrase in verse 24. You'll also see the phrases in verse 11 and 12, which I forgot to write write on the handout. The point is this, each is put alongside others like themselves, but not God. Because you cannot put God alongside anything else. There is nothing and no one like him God and creation are separate. However, the creation does reflect God's character. 
And not least of all in the word good. Again, it's a word that was repeated, uh, deliberately repeated uh, in this chapter because it's part of the structure of this chapter. We're meant to notice it as a key point. God made a good world. Let me run it through you, or run you through it would be a better way of saying it. Uh, Looking at the seas and the land, end of verse 10, God saw that it was good. Having made vegetation and plants and trees, end of verse 12, God saw that it was good. He made the sun, the moon, the stars and the planets, and end of verse 18, God saw that it was good. He created every kind of fish and bird, and at the end of verse 24, he saw that it was good. At the end of verse 25, having made the animals, God saw that it was good. Have you got the point? And in verse 31, after creating humankind, God saw that it was very good. God made a good creation. Now that tells us a number of things that are very important. Uh, I've got two of them, and again you'll see them uh, on the handout, two sub-points under the point of God and creation. First thing it tells us that God, uh, that, that, that physical is good. See, having said earlier that, uh, that matter, stuff, is not everything, as some people would say, it's the only thing. Having said that matter is not everything, we must not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Matter, stuff, is good. God created a physical, material world. There's nothing inherently bad in stuff. The Bible is not anti-matter. We must not regard physical objects as second-rate, or worse, as sinful. Now, I think this is crucial because some Christians are negative about stuff and about bodies and about the physical creation, seeing those things as rather inferior things. And when they talk about their spiritual life, just listen into this, they talk about their spiritual life or their Christian life, what they're talking about is prayer and Bible study. Now, they seem to dismiss football and work and sex as being spiritual. Now, listen, if you think that way, that is sub-Christian. It's a way of thinking that's been around for centuries, but it's wrong. Uh, The the Christians in Corinth struggled with it. It comes to us today in many ways, through the whole New Age spirituality. Uh, Hollywood is full of it. Uh, You see it in some movies, uh, and some film stars are captivated by it. It's a key understanding of the Christian science movement. In Christian science, the world is illusory. You are never sick in Christian science because you don't have a body to be sick with. When you think you're sick, you're being deceived into the great lie that the body exists. The Hare Krishnas see the world as illusory. To them, the world is deceiving us. It's trying to distract us from the the ultimate reality, which is kind of spiritual and out there. And you mustn't enjoy anything that is physical. Actually, I said out there. For some of the Hare Krishnas, it's it's in here. But anyway, that's not the point. There is, um, for them... No enjoyment in anything physical. No enjoyment in what you eat. No enjoyment of sex. Even while you're having it, you only have it for procreation. And you mustn't enjoy it because any attraction to the physical will take you away from spiritual reality. You see, in their thinking, the body must be mastered, repressed, avoided. Now, at times, uh, this way of thinking may sound impressive, but don't be fooled. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that the physical material world is good. God made a good creation. Matter matters, to use a phrase. The second thing that this uh, constant refrain, and it was good, tells us is that God is good, as I've put on the handout. You see, the fact that God made a good world is crucial, or we will begin to question whether God himself is good. You don't need me to tell you that the world we live in now 
is very far from good, whether it be the floods in Australia, the murder of a young woman in Bristol or the arrest of a suspected paedophile working at a children's nursery. The world is not good, not now. Now when we look at Genesis chapter 3 in a few weeks' time, we'll understand from that chapter why the world we live in now is far from good. But if we're not clear from chapter 1 that God made a good world, when we look at chapter 3, or indeed when we just look at the world around us with all its evil and pain, we'll find it hard to believe that God is a good God. I was uh, so pleased to see Silent Witness back on our screens this week. Caroline and I don't watch a lot of telly. Most of it we find uh, pretty hopeless, but we do like Silent Witness, and it's back on the screens uh, for for an episode or two, which is great. In the first of this uh, first one, two-part episode called Guilty Mind, the pathologist, Dr Nikki Alexander, played by Amelia Fox, has just performed an autopsy on an eight-year-old girl who had been murdered and then raped. She's also discovered that the man who murdered the little girl had had life-savering surgery some years before. And the professor who performed the surgery on the man who went on to murder the little girl was so devastated that he had saved the life of someone who became a murderer and rapist that he has now taken his own life. Well, talking to a colleague, Dr Nikki Alexander says this, I did a post-mortem on an eight-year-old little girl the other day. I'm trying to understand why it bothers me. Why does this one bother me so much? Why her? There was something so evil about it all. It all felt contagious, sucking me under. I I struggle against it and it just makes me tired. And then going on to speak of the surgeon who'd performed this life-saving operation on the then murderer who'd now committed uh, suicide, she says this, You're an eminent doctor, a professor. You've worked all your life to improve the lives of others. Not a lot of public recognition for it, but it doesn't matter. It's for the common good. You remove a tumour from a man's brain, saving his life. You've done it before, very successfully. You're recognised as an expert, fated by your peers. And the man you healed, the one whose life you saved, kills and rapes an eight-year-old girl. God's perverse joke, she says. She goes on, it's so evil, it's like an infectious disease, there's no cure for it. God gives us these gifts and then conspires for us to use them to destroy innocence. Do you ever have the feeling that everything we do is pointless? God has already decreed the verdict and all we have to do is figure out how he did it. It's a brilliant bit of writing. See, as she looks around at the wickedness in the world, believing that God is in control of everything, she has to conclude that God is playing sick games with us, giving us amazing abilities to heal only for that healing to be used to kill and destroy innocent lives playing a game with us to see if we can work out what all this is really all about. See, that's the kind of conclusion we'll come to unless we have the confidence that that comes from Genesis chapter 1 that God is a good God. It is an essential foundation to make sense of life in this world that frankly is often an enigma. Well, look, my, my time has gone. The first three themes of this wonderful first chapter of the Bible, God, his word and creation. Next week we'll look at idolatry, humankind and eternal rest. But for now, as we close, uh, turn with me briefly to John chapter 1.
page 1063. A very brief look at John chapter 1 as we tie some ends together. See, as you turn there, page 1063, John chapter 1, as you turn there, and there may be people here saying, or maybe people you speak to say, yes, that's all well and good, I see what Genesis chapter 1 is saying, but, but why should I believe it? Why should I believe those, great, those three great themes? Why should I believe that there is a good God who created the world through his word? Well, let me read John chapter 1. Verses 1 to 3. Verse 1, in the beginning. You see, the Bible, the Bible reader can't miss the way John is pointing us to Genesis chapter 1 with those first three words, in the beginning. And with Genesis chapter 1 in our minds, we can't miss the deliberate shift either. It's not in the beginning God, but in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Here it seems is a personification of the word of God as the only thing that existed before creation. The agent through which God created the world. But then suddenly in the same chapter we discover it's not just a personification. For we read in verse 14, and the word became flesh. It turns out that the creating word who was there back in Genesis chapter 1, before the creation of the world and at the creation of the world, was none other than Jesus showing himself to be the creator by his own miracles of creation, by a word feeding 5,000 out of nothing, by a word subduing creation, by a word healing and resurrecting and showing himself to be good by the way he lived among us. So good that he would suffer and die to deal with the evil in this world. So good that he would willingly be punished by evil men for the evil they had done. Why should I believe that there is a God who created the world, a good God who created the world through his word? Because astonishingly, the God who created every star and planet, as we sang earlier, who holds creation together, the author of creation, the Lord of every man, that God came among us to seek and save the lost. How utterly breathtaking is that? So, Praise him, you heavens and all that's above. Praise him, you angels and heavenly hosts. Let the whole earth praise him.